You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Our ushers would love to bring you one. If you don't have one in your hands this morning, they'll, they'll fire one over to you so that you can be in God's Word with us. We're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark. Surprise, surprise. Uh, we've been in there for quite a while, but we love walking verse by verse uh, through it. We're, gonna, we're in Mark chapter 8 uh, right now. We're going to be looking today at verses 22 to 38. And uh, last week when we, when we were together, we were uh, looking at the verses just previous in Mark chapter 8, and we were called uh, to remember the bread, uh, to remember that Jesus Christ is the living and eternal bread. As we watched him miraculously feed 4,000 hungry people until they were fully satisfied, we also seen after that how the Pharisees, uh, in their hatred for Jesus, argued with him and they asked for a sign from heaven to prove that he was who he said they were. And he didn't give them that. He rejected their spiritual skepticism. We also witnessed how the disciples after that were also still confused with Jesus how they were too overly focused on the earthly things and not focused enough on the spiritual things. They were spiritually complacent. And so Jesus rebuked them in their unbelief. Remember, he said in verses 17 to 18, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not yet understand. Jesus is pretty fired up about understanding. He's, he's pretty serious about hearing things clearly and seeing the truth fully. And we're going to see some more of that today as this, this section of seeing still continues in the scriptures and that it still needs to be driven home to our hearts as well because we need gospel clarity. We need gospel clarity. As Mark moves into this next uh, section of seeing, we see that we also need gospel clarity. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know if you uh, would agree with me, um, but there's all kinds of gospels floating around there today. All kinds of different perceptions and understandings about who Jesus is and what the good news is. As these disciples are still confused in the text, many today are still confused as well. Many today are still disillusioned, both outside of the church and inside of the church. Now, most people today believe that there's many ways to get to heaven. Let your truth be your truth. Uh, the majority of the world believes that you get to heaven by doing good things, by being a good person. This Jesus guy is okay as long as you can stomach his backwood, bigoted social ideas. You know, our school systems are trying really, really hard to deny his existence altogether. Even those inside the church are having a fuzzy understanding about who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Many believe that the gospel is a confession they once made, a prayer they once prayed, an aisle they once walked. 
but yet there's no evidence of his lordship or, or holiness in their lives. Some churches today preach a gospel of self-help. Come to Jesus and everything's going to get better. He'll fix your spouse. He'll fix your marriage. He'll fix your family. He'll fix all of your problems. And then others flip that gospel right on its head and, and they pander to our flesh, our fleshly desires, saying that God wants, to, God wants you to accomplish your dreams. God wants you to be true to yourself. You have everything you need already inside of you to achieve your goals. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be healed. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to have wealth. He wants you to have prosperity. And on and on and on it goes. The truth is that the world right now is full of weak and watered-down gospels, half-truths, false gospels, anti-gospels. But what we're after this morning is the clear gospel. And we're going to see that in God's word, Jesus is serious about the gospel. And he's serious about the only gospel, the only good news, and he wants us to get it right. Because without gospel clarity, we have gospel confusion. And when we have gospel confusion, we may not have the gospel at all. So brothers and sisters, Jesus wants us to see the gospel clearly. He wants us to know who he really is. He wants us to know what he has really done. He wants us to know the cost of following him. And we're going to see that in the text here this morning. Before we do that, let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help. Lord, we do uh, come before you. We pray that you would humble our hearts before you, that you would open our minds to understand. Spirit, would you, would you reveal to our hearts uh, the words of your text, of, of your Bible here this morning? We know, Holy Spirit, that you have written the scriptures through men and that you determined that we would open it up and read it and you would apply those deeply into our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that you would lead us into all truth. Lord, we thank you that, that you are faithful to do that. Lord, we need you this morning. We need your Spirit's help. We need your strength. We can't do it on our own. So, Lord, would you speak to us through your word? Speak directly to our hearts, and may we respond with faith. And would you grow us this morning? Would you renew our minds? Would you conform us further into the image of your Son? Lord, would you move me aside, and would you teach your people? We trust you. In faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26 is the first little section we're going to look at. Mark 8, verses 22 to 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he, the blind man, looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Well, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter a village. Well, in this first section, what we're going to see here is that Jesus reveals everything. Jesus reveals everything and we need gospel clarity. 
So as Jesus was clearly frustrated with his disciples' lack of understanding last week, we're about to witness yet again another miracle, another intentional miracle by our sovereign God. Uh, And Jesus and his disciples encounter a blind man. The text says they came to Bethsaida. I think we have a map there. Bethsaida is is back in Jewish territory, but it's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida was a fishing village. The word Bethsaida means house of the fisher. It was also the hometown to Peter and Andrew and Philip. And the fame of Jesus was known everywhere at this time, especially in Galilee. And the news of his arrival always attracts people, right? It always attracts people to seek healing. And so we see that happening again. People are bringing Jesus a blind man. And they're begging him to touch him, to heal him. And so as Jesus always does, compassionately, he responds to heal this blind man. But this healing is not his usual routine. This time he takes the blind man outside of the village. It says he took the blind man by the hand. I love that. The Lord of the universe touching somebody who is considered unclean, taking him by the hand, leading him outside of the village. And this is quite similar to the healing we just heard of the deaf and mute man, remember? He took him aside and, and healed him. Perhaps Jesus was trying to avoid the attraction of the crowds and also the danger of the Pharisees. Remember, they're after him. And as he and uh, his disciples go outside with this blind man outside the village, something else kind of strange goes on here. Jesus takes this blind man and he spits in his eyes. Then it says that he lays his hand on him, lays his hands on him. And then he says, do you see anything? So just the touching alone of this blind man would have been forbidden by the Jews at that time. He would have been considered unclean. Uh, But as Jesus was just teaching, it's not what's outside that defiles a person, right? It's what's inside. He chooses to touch and compassionately heal again. And he says to him, after spitting in his eyes and, and laying his hands on him, he says to him, do you see anything? And the blind man looks up. He looks up and he says, I see People, but they look like trees walking. It's kind of mysterious. It's like he could see enough out of his eyes that he could make out shapes of people, but it wasn't clear enough to determine whether it was trees or people. It looked like these trees are are walking or they're moving around. He could see, but it wasn't clear enough to differentiate It was still fuzzy. It wasn't a complete healing. Well, like I said, this is quite different than any other time Jesus healed. Every other time that Jesus healed, people were instantly and completely healed. Remember the deaf and mute man, his ears were instantly opened and he spoke plainly. Remember that? He spoke clearly like he'd been speaking his whole life. 
Back in Mark chapter 5, when we, we hear the story about this bleeding woman, remember when she was healed, the text says, immediately the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. This was instant healing of a lifelong bleeding issue. And then also, also in chapter 5, we've seen uh, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. The text says in chapter 5, verse 42, that immediately the girl got up and began walking. You usually don't, usually don't uh, get up from even being sick and just start walking around. It takes some time, but she was dead, and she was raised up, and she was walking. So up to this point, whenever Jesus would heal, it was always complete. So what's going on here? What's with this partial healing? Is there something wrong with Jesus? Is he tired? Is he losing his powers? Did he make a mistake? Did he not use enough spit? Well, as, as we already know, whenever Jesus heals somebody, whenever we see a miracle, it always speaks of more, right? Healings and miracles are living parables in Scripture of greater eternal realities, so this was intentional. It was an intentional on Jesus' part to just partially heal at this time. Because I think Jesus knows what he's doing, right? His powers are not limited. God spoke and the universe exploded into existence. He has all power. He's being intentional here. He hasn't lost anything. Verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And so Jesus sends him home and he says, don't even enter the village. So the bigger picture that we're seeing here is that Jesus, as always, is teaching his watching disciples even though they are slow to understand, they're slow to grasp the greatness of who he is, what he's teaching them is there is going to be a time when you will see clearly. He's showing them that their lack of seeing right now is a part of a process. It's a process of revelation to them. And it's a process of revelation that is being worked out and initiated by God. The ability to see, the ability to understand the gospel does not happen on our own efforts. Like the blind man's healing, one commentator says, the ability to see both physically and spiritually is a gift from God. It's not of human ability. And so what we're seeing here is a two-stage healing with intentionality, and it's meant to show his disciples that there's more to come. That yes, right now they are confused. Right now they, they can't see perfectly and clearly, but it's about to come. And it's not, not until Christ's work on the cross and on the earth is completely finished and the Holy Spirit comes that they're going to truly understand and see the gospel clearly. Jesus is revealing everything. His disciples will see the gospel clearly. 
Now, I don't know about you sometimes, but sometimes I find road signs very confusing. I find them really, really unclear. If you've parked down Cal- downtown Calgary, you have to read signs so clearly or you're going to find yourself in trouble. Just take a look at that sign. Imagine trying to figure that out while you're driving in traffic all around you. I've run into this a couple times, and I don't, I don't even know if I can even stop there. It says you can park sometimes. You can't park sometimes. You can't even stop there sometimes. And then the hours, it's so hard to figure out while you're driving past at 50 kilometers an hour. It's so confusing. It's so unclear. When it comes to the gospel, we can't be like that sign. We have to be clear. When it comes to the gospel, we have to, we have to know it clearly. So as we all stand on this side of the cross, remember Jesus and his disciples, this is all pre-cross. This is all about to happen. Now that we stand on this side, we get to see it all clearly. They got to see it all clearly as well. As we stand on this side of the cross, as we stand on this side of an open tomb, we have the full revelation of Jesus Christ in his word. Just thinking about his disciples, they're walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. They're with the God of the universe, yet they didn't see the full picture yet. They didn't fully understand everything yet. It was fuzzy, but it was coming. Jesus is showing them in this, in this miracle that it's coming. You, don't, you may not see right now, but it's coming, and it's going to be clear for you to understand. As he clarifies the gospel, as of this time, this is a crucial time when they start, Jesus and his disciples start making steps towards Jerusalem. The mission's about to change. They're going to start going towards Jerusalem as they still minister. So as Jesus finally heals this blind man completely, and he finally reveals everything to his disciples uh, through his resurrection, through his death on the cross, resurrection, and through the coming of the Spirit, we as well have received the whole clear gospel. That's what the Spirit does for us. That's what the Word does for us. We get to see it clearly. So for for those of us who are Christians here this morning... God's revelation is complete. On the cross, Jesus said it is finished. It is complete. It is clear. And if you are a Christian, your eyes have been opened. Your spiritual eyes have been opened to the truth by the Holy Spirit so that you can understand. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly, foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit has to open our eyes to the clear truth of the gospel. And so if we are Christians here this morning, we have that whole truth. We have the Spirit, and we need to be clear with our gospel. We need to be clear with our gospel. Clear for ourselves here, and clear for the world. Which means we don't water it down. We don't oversimplify it. We don't confuse it. We don't make it up as we go. We study what this book has to say about the gospel so that we know it. And we know it clearly. We don't want to add to it. We don't want to take away from it. 
because we need all of it in its clear and powerful fullness. Jesus reveals everything. We need gospel clarity. And so this is what's going to be revealed as we see uh, the rest of these, the scripture fo- unfold here. The next sections of scripture are going to reveal crucial details about the gospel that we need to see abundantly clearly. And the first one starts in verse 27 to 30. And it's this, that Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And we need to know who he really is. Verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. Verse 29, and he asked them, his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is a crucial, crucial question. So we as as Jesus, as disciples, and as these disciples are following him, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to know who we're following. And so we see his disciples following him. They, They leave Bethsaida and they go north to Caesarea Philippi, that, that's, it's a 40-kilometer uh, journey, which would be a full day's walk at that time. Going to Caesarea Philippi in the north. Obviously, this city was named after Caesar. It was a largely pagan city. It was mostly Gentiles living there. It was known for uh, sanctuaries to pagan gods, uh, especially for the false god Pan. Uh, this uh, is a God they believe was uh, half man, half goat. And they would worship him in a cave at the bottom of uh, the foot of Mount Hermon. Very pagan area. And so as Jesus takes steps towards there, and as his disciples follow him to this pagan area, Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And so they answer him with what they have heard. They answer him with the popular opinions of the day. They told him John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Uh, If you remember earlier in the text, after Herod killed John the Baptist, there was similar suspicions back then as well. Mark chapter 6, verses 14. Uh, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Uh, Some said that Jesus was John the Baptist, has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Uh, But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Remember, he killed John because John confronted him in his sin. And so he thinks John has come back from the grave to get back at him. So we see that from the outcasts all the way up to the kings, they couldn't deny Jesus' incredible powers. They knew that he was no ordinary man. 
And so they started to surmise, he must, he must be one of the great men of old, uh, the prophet Elijah, or, or one of the great prophets like Jeremiah. Or he's John, the great and last prophet, reincarnated from the dead. But as awesome and as honorable as these prophets are in biblical history, their guesses all fall short of who Jesus really is. And so Jesus goes after what he's really looking for. He's actually not interested in the popular opinion. He goes after the hearts of his disciples. Those who he specifically have, has called to follow him. Those who he's been training for months and months and months. And those who have had a front row seat to every miracle and every teaching of Jesus. Those who are also going to go after him and represent him to the world. He goes after their hearts. Who do you say that I am? He's not worried about popular opinion. Who do you say that Jesus is? Was he just a nice guy in history? Was he just a prophet? Was he just some kind of extraordinary magician? Or is he the son of God? Is he the savior of the world? How we answer this question is the defining line of true faith. It's the fulcrum for which our faith falls or rises. And there are so many opinions out there today about who Jesus is. Many today just believe that Jesus was some eccentric figure in history. He was just a great moral teacher. He just taught about love. He just cared for the poor. He loved the outcast. But when it comes to these miracles and these claims that Jesus made to be God, the world, by and large, rejects him. In 1820, President of the United States at that time, Thomas Jefferson, took his Bible. We got a picture of it here. He took his Bible and he took a razor blade and he started cutting out any reference to Christ's miracles in the gospel. Because he loved the moral teachings of Jesus, but he rejected all of the miracles and the power and his teachings about being God. Thomas Jefferson had the wrong Jesus. Mahatma Gandhi thought very highly of Jesus. He even said, live like Jesus and the world will listen. But he didn't believe that Jesus was God or the Savior of the world. Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet. The Quran mentions Jesus 25 times. They believe that he was born of a virgin, of a virgin, that he uh, performed miracles. They believe that he was assumed up into heaven. They believe that he's going to come back on the day of judgment. But they don't believe that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. They don't have the real Jesus. Mormonism claims to be the Jesus or the church of Jesus Christ, yet they don't believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. 
They don't believe that he's the second person of the Trinity. They don't have the real Jesus. Roman Catholicism believes that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that he is the second member of the Trinity, but they don't believe that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. They believe that it's Jesus plus baptism plus communion plus the rest of the sacraments that all together those things save you and keep you. They don't believe that Jesus is enough. They've got the wrong Jesus. And so as Jesus asks his disciples who they personally believe that he is, who stands up but Peter, and Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him yet. You know, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, only God the Father from heaven and only demons confess that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter's confession here is the very first human confession that Jesus is the Christ. He says to Jesus, you are the Christ. Of course, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. In the Old Testament, it was only the prophets, it was only the priests, and it was only the kings who were anointed. And as Jesus came, and through his ministry, and through his life, he perfectly represents and fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And in Peter's day, in Jesus' day, the Jews were looking for a king. Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Jews were waiting. They were looking for an anointed, righteous, savior, king. And so as Peter stands up in representation of all the 12, as he often would, you'll see later in his life, he declares that Jesus Christ, this man from Nazareth, is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the one they've been waiting for. And so we ask ourselves, Who do we say that Jesus is? Because this defines and it divides what true faith is. You know, even as Christians, we need to ask ourselves this very same question. Who do we say that Jesus is? Does it change based on our life circumstances? Does it change where we happen to be during the week? Is, is Jesus different to us on a Saturday night than he is on a Sunday morning? 
Is he Christ both in the good times and the bad times? Is is he the same Savior when we've got it all together and the same Savior when everything seems to be falling apart? Is he still Christ when, when people come and go in our life? Is he near when we want him to be near? Do we ignore him when we want to give in to the temptations of this life? You see, we can say all day, we can say all day that Jesus is Lord from our mouths, but yet our hearts can be far from him. We can be professing Christians, yet practical atheists. We can call ourselves Christians all we want and sing in the congregation, I want to know you, Lord. And yet we don't open the only way that we get to know him. We say that we hope in, in God, but yet we find more excitement in the things that are here. Relationships, children, success, money, sex, entertainment, things, sin. And so we ask ourselves, what are we confessing with our mouths about Jesus, but what are we confessing with our lives? Who do you say that he is? This is a challenge to our hearts, and it's good. I also want to encourage you as our church, you know, as I receive uh, the prayer requests every week, and I love to pray for everything that, that you're needing in prayer. Love that. I'm also encouraged by your prayers. Encouraged that you, your prayers are becoming more and more Christ-focused. Focused on holiness. Focused on growing in your faith. Focused on growing in your witness. Focused on finding your joy in Christ. That's a sign of health growing in our church, that, that our eyes are not just set on, on the things that are here, the things that we need in prayer, but our eyes are set on the focus of the glory of God. And so I want to encourage you in that. As Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, we're seeing growth in our church that, that people are understanding that Jesus is the Christ. Peter rightly confesses that he is the Christ. Because Jesus is everything. And we need to know who he really is. And so with knowing who he is, we can't truly know him unless we know what he has done. Which leads to our third point. He's done everything. We need to know what he's really done. So as Peter just rightly confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus now begins to explain what it means to be the Christ. Verses 31 to 33, Jesus began to teach them, teach who? Teach his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. To be the Christ doesn't mean that Jesus came to be an earthly ruler. He didn't come to overthrow Rome. He didn't come at that time to destroy the enemies of the land of Israel. To be Christ means to suffer. 
It means to be rejected. It means to, to experience death by the hands of those who were the spiritual leaders at that time. This wasn't the Messiah the disciples thought he would be. The Old Testament was promising a victorious king. Why would the Messiah have to die? That doesn't make any sense to them. And even more so, what's this business about three days later you will rise? What's that all about? That's not going to happen. Nobody's ever resurrected from the grave. This was too much to believe for the disciples. It didn't fit. But the text says that Jesus said this to them plainly. Which means that he didn't conceal it. He didn't conceal this inside of a par parable. In Matthew's gospel, he, he already spoke towards this in a parable. Matthew 12, 40. Got it on the screen. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was speaking this to the Pharisees and the scribes with his disciples. He had to conceal the truth. But now he's got his disciples alone and he wants them to hear this clearly. He wants them to know it. He wants them to understand this as the clearest revelation. But yet they fully don't grasp it. It doesn't make sense to them. Look how Peter dealt with it. Verse 32, Peter takes, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Just think about that. This ordinary, lowly fisher taking the Lord of the universe to the side and rebuking him. Rebuking the Lord of the universe. Peter and the disciples were confused. And in their confusion, they were upset because why? Because they left everything they had to follow this guy. And now he's telling us he's going to die and he's going to rise from the grave? It's too impossible. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. By rebuking Jesus, Peter is, is rebuking the divine plan of God. The plan that has been put in place before the foundation of time, before the foundation of the earth. He's rebuking the divine hand of God. And to be opposed to the divine plan of God is to partner with Satan. The irony here of Peter's first confession with now this satanic denial, it just reveals the futility of man. We do this all the time in our lives. We're foolish, just like Peter. We're slow to understand. But Jesus condemns this kind of response as satanic to the core. He says, you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. These guys can't see beyond their own circumstance. They can't see beyond their own limited understanding. They aren't accepting the full picture, the clear picture, the picture of the good news. They love the good news that he's the Christ, but they don't love the bad news that he has to die. 
They love the Jesus Christ of their own understanding. But they hate what it means to be the Messiah in the divine plan of God. So what we need to look at this is to understand that the whole gospel must include the whole story. Jesus wasn't just a great guy who cared for people. He wasn't just an awesome teacher who taught great moral principles. He didn't just come to heal the sick and cast out demons. He didn't come to be an earthly king. He came to be a suffering servant. Like the passage we read this morning in Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah prophesied this 700 years before Jesus came. Who else could fulfill this? Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verses 4 to 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, they were holding on to the prophecies of this king and overlooking the prophecies that this king would be a suffering servant. He would be a suffering king. Rejection and suffering and death, resurrection, was incomprehensible to the disciples. But it was perfect. This is God's perfect, holy plan fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ lived for our righteousness. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave for our salvation. But the disciples couldn't get their mind off the things of the world. You see, it's not about just believing in Jesus. It's about believing in what he has done. The whole gospel. It's about believing that his death and his resurrection were necessary. He had to come and live perfectly because all of us fall short of the glory of God. He had to come as the perfect final sacrifice so that he could atone for our sins and receive God's punishment and wrath upon himself. Because why? Because of our sin. He had to die because the wages of sin is death. Blood has to be spilled for the forgiveness of sins. And then he had to rise from the grave. He had to rise to conquer sin and death so that we could live forever at peace with God in glory forever. That's love. That's the gospel. That's the, that's the real good news. The disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand this rejection, suffering, and death. It all seemed like terrible things, but they would soon understand as they continue to walk with Jesus. They would understand that he's done everything. On the cross, he says, it is finished. So we need to know what he has really done. 
And so we need to ask ourselves, do we know the gospel? Do we know all of this? Is this your gospel? It's the only gospel. All other gospels are misrepresentations, half gospels, false gospels. We need to know what Jesus has really done. We need to know how it works. We need to know for our children. We need to know for our family. We need to know this for our neighbors. We need to know this for our co-workers. We need to know what Jesus has really done. And we don't short sell it. You know, we went and watched the, uh, the recent movie called Unplanned. It was a, uh, it's, a, it's a great movie about abortion. It's about pro-life, fighting for the unborn, and I would commend it to you to highlight the atrocity of abortion. But what I found really disheartening in the movie that there was no clear gospel. There was a lot of talk about forgiveness, which is true, which is good, but they never talked about how people are forgiven. They never talked about repentance and faith. They never talked about that, that our, our sin is worthy of eternal punishment. Friends, we have to know how it works. We have to have gospel clarity. And so Jesus reveals everything. Jesus is everything. He's done everything. And then in closing, he requires everything. We need to know what it really costs. Verse 34 to 38, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, I love that. I mean, that's the theme of our, our series, Follow Me. The whole point is that we would follow Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that means whatever the cost, whatever it is, we give it up for Jesus Christ. Whether it's rejection, whether it's suffering, whether it's death, we take up our cross and follow Jesus, which means we welcome the suffering that may come along with that, and we follow him, and nothing gets in the way. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Friends, we have nothing to fear. Losing is winning. And so we don't try to preserve what we have going on here. We lose it all for Christ. Because losing is winning and he's worth it. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Your eternal soul is the most precious thing to you. Don't gamble with it. Don't trade it for the world. The world will fail you every time and you only get one shot. For what can man give in return for his soul? Verse 37. It's rhetorical. Nothing. You can't give anything in return for your soul. Christ gave it all for your soul. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me 
and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is coming back soon. It can't be any more clearer and weightier than that. Jesus is serious about gospel clarity. And he calls us to follow him. And it's not going to be easy. Every, every day is not a Friday. It's not your best life now. It's not about health. It's not about wealth. It's not about prosperity. It's about rejection, suffering, and death. Dying to ourselves every day. It's about the fulfillment, not of our dreams. It's about the fulfillment of the cross in Jesus Christ. It's about a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And that is worth banking everything on. It's worth losing everything over. It's about dying to yourself and living for Christ. As Paul would say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so as a church, the charge is, let's live this unashamed life. Let's be picking up our crosses daily. We live in an adulterous and crooked generation. We need to believe in Jesus. Confess that he is the Christ with our mouths and with our lives. And when our Savior comes in glory, let him not be ashamed of us. Rather than him being ashamed of us, what we want is that he will say to us, looking at us in the eyes, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our hope. That's our life. That's our faith. That's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. He reveals everything. We need gospel clarity. He is everything. We need to know who he really is. He's done everything. We need to know what he's really done. And he requires everything. We need to know what it really costs. We need the whole gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we do uh, come before you and, and we stand in awe of what you have revealed. We see you healing this blind man in two stages and how that, that points forward uh, to the process with your disciples uh, that at that time they weren't seeing clearly, but it's to come. And it came in perfect fulfillment at the cross of Jesus Christ and in your resurrection. Thank you for showing us that today, Lord. Thank you also uh, for showing us that, that we need to know who you really are. That we can't make it up. We have to know who you are by your word. That's the news that we need to hear, that we need to preach to each other and preach to the world. Thank you for that. Thank you also for showing us that we need to know more than just a name. We need to know exactly what you have done. That salvation actually works. That it actually accomplishes the goal that you have set forth. Thank you for showing us that today. Thank you for also highlighting the cost of following you. Lord, we don't want to lose our souls to gain the world. 
Lord, we pray that, uh, that you'd be working on our hearts and revealing more of this to us. And Lord, as we continue to walk in you, would you continue to grow us, grow us in our understanding that we can see more clearly. Thank you that your spirit constantly reveals the truth to us as we open up your word. And we thank you that your, your spirit also gives us the strength. We, we recognize that we can't do this on our own. We need your spirit's strength to move our feet, to move our hearts, to open our minds to your word and to bring about change. And so, Lord, as, as we walk forward as a church, would we be people who are willing to lose it all for your sake? Lord, as we sing again of your name, would you also encourage us? Thank you that you are growing us. You are good and you are faithful to do so. Receive our praise now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.